You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more information about the variety of topics covered on the show, as well as my other podcast, How to Stand, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. And if you enjoy this episode, please consider becoming a monthly donor to support my work and allow it to continue to go on and be free for all to access for as low as 99 cents a month. Visit the support the show link on my site's homepage for more information. Hi everybody, welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop. Before I get to so much news that happened this past week, some exciting personal and professional news. My latest interview is with fourth generation K-Pop icons, the MCND. You can check out their interview as well as my coverage of what happened at the virtual but closed to the press only press conference, as well as my album review, some general commentary about why I think this group was right out of the gate labeled a super rookie group to pay attention to, all things MCND exclusives are now up on my site. So if you go to 17karatkpop.weebly.com, go to the episodes tab and click interviews in the drop down menu. Or click more, and in the drop-down menu, click blog posts. Or, and this is what I actually really would love for you all to do, you could join my free Substack mailing list. If you go to howstand.substack.com, you can subscribe to ensure that you never miss a single post, essay, interview, album review, whatever I put on my site, monthly guides to all the episodes released that month, sources, additional sources that I use when talking about these big news stories and other content, all the research I cite, all of those extra goodies you can get for free and make sure you never miss them in your inbox if you subscribe. Howtostand.substack.com will take you there. And it's really not cute to beg, so I won't be doing that, but would really help out, frankly, financially as well as professionally to be able to boast a big, long list of people subscribe to my newsletter. Could be really big for my career. I'm an independent freelance creator. Really, really would love the support. Howtostand.substack.com Alright, with that out of the way, let's dive into tons of news. There is a ton of updates to give on a story I started talking about last week on the show. There's been a lot happening in the world of Chinese media and music. So as I mentioned last week, due to the assault scandals plaguing Chris Wu, as well as the excessive pay controversy as it's viewed as for who they call a tax evader, famous actors including Zhao Wei and Zhen Xuan, China has taken this moment to really try to make sure the narrative stays on these condemned people and not view this as a time for a cultural reckoning more around Chris Wu and a success for the Me Too movement in China. Instead, they want to focus on the latter people, the actors, the problem with what they view as excessive fandom, loyalty, and support for artists who they deem to not have the right values. They are putting a lot of blame on fans for supporting certain people who are living that lavish, rich lifestyle. So as I go through the latest developments, just keep in mind the conversation we started having last week about how the narrative is being pivoted away from Me Too towards making this an indictment about just celebrity culture overall. With that being said, 
China has done a lot recently to crack down even further on celebrities and fandoms. First of all, they have banned celebrity rankings. So you know how once a month you'll read about, especially with K-pop stars, this seems to be a big buzzed about thing. Every month there's like a ranking and it's interesting to find out the top three brand rankings as they're called for which K-pop groups are just viewed as the best and in most high demand to represent brands and stuff. It's a reputation index. It's, it's a lot of things. China used to do that too until now. They view these things now as a threat to, quote, online political and ideological security, unquote. Now, listicles of favorites will still be allowed. So like ranking TV shows, songs, etc. You can still publish that stuff. But no more official tabulations of brand rankings of actual people. This is also kind of retroactive because Chinese state media has also sent out a call to scrub all previously published celeb ranking charts from the internet. The listicles that are still allowed also have to change how they're calculated. So it has to be based less in the ranking on numbers and likes, social media buzz, and now during rankings, more weight has to be given to, quote, indicators like work orientation and professional evaluation. This was dubbed a way to, quote, rectify chaos in the fan community, unquote, and is part of a 10-point list issued by Chinese government and state media for ways to rectify the chaos, as they put it, in these fan communities. Important context here is the timeline, because this 10-point list, this campaign against excessive fandom culture, as they put it, was in high gear, actually, months prior to the Chris Wu scandal. Back in June this year, the Cyberspace Affairs Commission there had laid out this plan to crack down on fandom culture, citing kids' mental health as an issue. They claimed fandoms were just getting too toxic, too much feuding online, some fandoms even doxing each other. They also criticized that social media culture of glorifying, flaunting wealthy products and the life of the rich and famous. A lot of this has to do with the ideology in terms of economic systems there because China is not a capitalist society. So if you're flaunting off your wealth, that's not going to be something people pine after the way they do in the USA. It's interesting because many things are being thrown at the wall at once. When it comes to them explaining why they think this 10-point plan is necessary. Because first they cite mental health, which is also purportedly the reason they just limited video gameplay to one hour a day on Fridays and weekends and holidays, and no video game time allowed at all Monday through Thursdays. So there's the mental health component, but they're also criticizing that glorification of wealth, and then they're saying the issue is bots. Computer bots having an unfair influence, rigging the chart rankings, and therefore misrepresenting what the public actually thinks in terms of brand reputation. They've also cited a lot of fandom organizing as if it was fandom manipulation, like when fandoms have teamed up to raise funds or have a big voting spree or do other things China has labeled solicitation or exploitation of kids' money and time. Aside from the celeb rankings being banned, China has also been banning what they view as too feminine, so now musicians there cannot represent themselves with makeup, outfits deemed girly, things that are not viewed as masculine enough. And this has actually been 
along a simmering issue as China has tried to adopt the very popular formats of reality shows and the likes that K-pop groups are all about. They kind of want some of that cultural influence, but they also don't. So they've always been resistant to fully adopting the K-pop industry's model because they don't view femininity and masculinity in the same way. I would argue South Korea really is doing what a lot more communities should do, which is, and I do have a sociology degree, I've spent years in gender studies, I can confirm that there's nothing inherently masculine or feminine about anything anyone wears. That is a construct that each society decides. And that's why the definitions vary, because it's all socially constructed. So anyway, my point is that in South Korea, they do disentangle totally the concept of masculine and feminine from what you wear. So in a lot of countries like the USA, if a guy wears eyeliner or nail polish, for example, that's viewed as feminine, which really doesn't make any sense. It has nothing to do with how you identify as masculine or feminine. That's not even the same thing. We'll lump those things together and assume girls are feminine, boys are masculine, and if they're not, there's something wrong because dichotomies, you know? And that bilateral thinking is not really a part of South Korea's culture in the same way. When K-pop stars wear eyeliner, high heels, etc. there, it's viewed as having nothing to do with gender identity or sex of whoever's wearing it. It's just clothes. And China doesn't get that. China doesn't see it that way. And so they worry about these two feminine flower boy images that they view their pop stars as developing. That's some of the economic and sociological circumstances worth taking into account. Now just the bizarre circumstances to take into account. One of the people targeted for excessive pay was the billionaire star Zhao Wei, aka Vicky Zhao. She was given a new $46 million tax bill and was scrubbed from social media. Her work is off all streaming sites. No direct reason for this was given, but people are assuming it's because of that tax bill. Broadcast companies have reportedly had some secret talks with the government to ensure that they're on the same page about not hiring her for future projects. And now she's gone missing in a bizarre twist. And after basically being blacklisted, these unverified reports came out claiming she was seen on a private flight to France. But then, August 29th, Zhao posted to her Instagram account to reassure people she was still in Beijing and just staying with her parents. But then the post was later deleted. So this is just a weird circumstance. As of recording time, the latest is that there's no true verification yet if she was seen on that plane to France. And who knows where she is. But she may have fled the country. She is super wealthy and does own property in France. That being said, it would make sense for the media to villainize her with this narrative, especially because she is a longtime friend and early investor for Jack Ma, who is really a villainized figure. He runs Alibaba Pictures Group, and the Beijing government does not like him. So her association with him may also be fueling this fire against her. The extra weird thing is, of course, that Instagram is banned in China, and she posted, To clarify, don't worry, I'm still in China. Certain stars do have permission to post sometimes on Instagram, so she could be one of those exceptions. It's just all very weird, though, because why would she get an exception if she's being villainized by them? So where is she and what's going on? 
I don't know, but I'll keep you posted. Meanwhile, Denise Ho, a singer from Hong Kong, had a concert abruptly canceled on her. She was set to perform at the Hong Kong Art Center September 8th through 12th, and so now she's just going to have a live stream the 12th, and refunds will be offered to fans. Her agency posted to Facebook, quote, We can't help but ask how. The Hong Kong Art Center, as an independent institution supporting contemporary art, which has been operating for 44 years, can now arbitrarily suspend contracts without substantive evidence. The venue cites a clause in the contract that permits the termination of scheduled events when those events are deemed ones that could lead to, quote, public order or public safety being endangered. Keep in mind that, as we've discussed at length on the show before, there's a very sensitive conversation here about Hong Kong and Taiwan, where pro-democracy advocates in some countries want to acknowledge them as countries of their own, whereas mainland China insists they are just a part of China. That's why John Cena recently had to issue that apology when he called Taiwan a country. Mainland China will be livid if you do that. So mainland China cracking down on the arts and music scene in Hong Kong is not abnormal. And Denise Ho has been very outwardly pro-democracy and is likely to be a prime target for this censorship as a result. So as if this wasn't enough of a wild upheaval in the world of Chinese art and entertainment with people missing, with the tax bills, with the Chris Wu scandal, with the celeb rankings banned. On top of all that, a brand new boy group has been disbanded. So this group actually debuted August 20th. They're called Panda Boys. Panda Boys debuted the 20th and disbanded the 24th. They lasted four days. This time it wasn't even about that not masculine enough, quote-unquote not masculine enough, identity of boy bands or whatever. This was actually because they had backlash, people accusing them of being this example of child exploitation, because the average age of the members was eight years old. The youngest member was actually seven years old. The group had also been kind of living up to this very youthful image. They were called the Cubs in official promo material. So at first, The company, Asia Starry Sky Group, planned a rebrand. So they didn't have to be called the Cubs, and instead of being called Panda Boys in China, they would be called Panda Children's Art Troupe in Chinese. Still Panda Boys in English. But the backlash continued. The rebrand was not satisfying people. And because the rebrand did not satisfy people, the company issued a statement saying, quote, No capital gang. We are doing something meaningful with a group of children who love singing and dancing, unquote. But then eventually they issued a statement saying, quote, Thanks for the supervision and criticism from society and online, unquote. That was in their statement announcing the disbandment. Again, it's this really weird moment for China because they kind of have been very successful with reality shows and other elements of K-pop culture incorporated into their own music scene. But they're always only willing to go so far. It needs the comparisons to stop there. And this incident just fits very cleanly into their narrative about celebrity culture going too far. We're putting people on a pedestal who we should not. This fits very neatly into that narrative. So ultimately, from all of this mess. One of my big takeaways is that for the foreseeable future, any story in China's entertainment industry world 
whenever they have a controversy, my guess is they're going to bring it back to this celebrity culture has gone too far argument. Because there are three types of countries in the world. There are countries that choose to own up to their mistakes, say we're sorry we went about this the wrong way, and try to rebuild and form a better society. Try to remedy sources of backlash, address the root causes of them, etc. Second group of countries, in terms of the entertainment industry and responding to backlash, are those who double down and insist they know what they're doing. The third are countries who kind of just deny what they're doing at all and go about remedying the problem in a way that I would argue makes things worse. And I think you could guess actually which one most countries choose out of those three options. So it's not so much a defensive stance as it is this damage control mode that is very far-reaching. So some of my takeaways are, first of all, keep in mind that this big celebrity culture has gone too far narrative there really wants to group so many instances under the same umbrella and ignore all of the nuances in each of those situations. So keep in mind that this is not so simple, as this has all gone too far. Let's stop and say, what are they dismissing as going too far? A Hong Kong musician having a concert? They're putting it in the same bucket as Chris Wu's allegations? I mean, think about that. So keep in mind the lack of nuance here that I worry about. Another concerning variable here is how far-reaching this is, in that it, I think we can't forget that this started, well, actually, you could argue years and years ago, but particularly this 10-point campaign started back in June. Because I think a lot of the conversation will continue to say, this was all triggered by the Chris Wu situation or the Jen Schwan situation. This started before all of that made headlines. This has been a while in the making. This 10-point plan did not come out of nowhere. The issue is not that it was thrown together quickly. It's actually probably been implemented and resulted in a crackdown on artistic expression and celebrity freedom for much longer than people think. So one, keep in mind that this is a very complex, layered situation that is being watered down to a concerning extent. Two, keep in mind that this is not only a umbrella defense happening here, but also one that's probably been encapsulating music, acting, so many areas of arts and entertainment for longer than we thought. And the other thing to keep in mind is something I'll elaborate on in a future episode with more historical context here, but long, long, long story short, is keep in mind that there is a lot of historical context here, and I think the pandemic has really been one of the biggest factors right now, contributing to this weird moment for a lot of countries. They're reassessing alliances, they're having strained alliances with other countries, and that is affecting pop culture in different countries. Those relationships, those potential sources of pop culture influence from different countries that they now no longer want anything to do with, or maybe want to incorporate into their pop culture even more. The pandemic has been changing those alliances, or maybe making some companies try to buckle down more and promote their own worldview and culture more than ever. Maybe they want to stop this globalized influences in some ways and focus on their own country. So keep that in mind. Again, there's so many things I could go into elaborating on that point, but keep in mind the crazy times we're living in probably have something to do with all of this. You've got COVID 
related restrictions being used as an excuse when it comes to cracking down on pro-democracy protests. You've got political leader changes around the world right now. You've got a lot of people in dire straits financially and very different economic models clashing over how to help those people or at least not hurt them further. Again, so many ways I could take this conversation, but just something that's very worth really, really thinking about. Let's move on to a reason back in the USA that a lot of people are pretty mad. BTS has been in the news this week again, but this time for disappointing reasons. So as you all know by now, Megan Thee Stallion, the iconic rapper, was going to join BTS on a remix of their hit song Butter. Now the background context is a lot that we don't have time to get into, but just know that Megan has a long history of feuding with her company because they won't let her release stuff. Because we're dealing with court cases, I don't want to get sued and I have to say alleged and claims and all of that. So just note I'm just obligatorily saying this stuff, presuming innocence, although I think you know if I support Megan or the label side here, but anyway. So Megan says, and has repeatedly brought up how she says her company blocks certain music releases for her and basically are all about money only and not the artist. And this has happened before, where she has had to make public her frustrations when they don't believe in her next career move that she sees as popular when they disagree and think it won't be popular. So what the court documents reveal is that her label, 1501, sent her, quote, a vague email saying that they thought a BTS collab would not be, quote, good for her career. They basically held this remix she did, Ransom, and they said she could release it if she earned their waiver and they would give her this by paying them 100k. So Megan filed a petition in Harris County, Texas against 1501 Certified Entertainment and Carl Crawford, the CEO. Megan argues in those court documents that it actually does harm to her career to not release this remix. Quote, an artist, especially a music artist, cannot be silenced without causing tremendous injury. Later on, quote, such irreparable injury to her personal goodwill in the silencing of her artistic expression in music cannot be compensated in the way of monetary damages. As such, Pete, Megan's last name, seeks emergency relief from this court. Basically, Megan did the remix and wanted to do it, wanted to release it. The company put a restraining order on it and said you can only release it if you win over our waiver and pay for it. And so Megan filed a petition saying, hey, this is unjust and harmful to any artist to suppress their work like that. As we now know, the judge sided with Megan. One aspect of this case I find particularly interesting is that this restraining order on her remix was described as temporary. So this company basically was holding a temporary restraining order blocking its release. So what that means is, if it's temporary, her company may try to renew it and issue a new temporary one. But the cat's out of the bag now, and the remix is out. The point is, it looks like they were buying some time for themselves by trying to put in just a temporary restraining order. For what? I don't know. But I just found that a detail worth noting. And so anyone who thought this remix would not pay off was dead wrong. 
The remix broke a Spotify record and now holds the record for biggest debut day of streaming for a remix in Spotify's history. In its first 24 hours, it surpassed 6.7 million streams. And the Army Fund, T-H-E-E, the Army Fund, helped raise over 100k. Very clever nod to the ransom amount of money. They said that was their donation goal is 100k. They split that donation between Black Women for Wellness, Women for Afghan Women, and the Houston Food Bank. And it took less than 24 hours to surpass that 100k donation record with resources pulled in from both the BTS Army and Megan Thee Stallion's fans, aka the Hotties. Another fun tongue-in-cheek detail I like about this is not just the 100k donation raised among fandoms, but also that one of the releases Megan previously could not release was her Suga mixtape. That is the best revenge I've ever heard. You won't let me release the Suga mixtape? Fine, I'll go collaborate with Suga the person. I also think this feels more spiteful than substantive, because if we were taking the whole emotional and perhaps close-mindedness aspects of what this company tried to do, just thinking about it purely from a practical framework, a logistics perspective, it really didn't make tons of sense to argue it would harm Megan's career to work with the biggest boy band in the world. Other female rappers, Nicki Minaj for example, have not faced some sort of expected fan backlash for joining a K-pop song. Granted, the Nicki Minaj fans I saw online during the Idol remix promo period were not the nicest or most excited about the collab, but it still streamed really well. I'm just so glad the judge sided with Megan, also from this practical standpoint, because I would be very scared if the precedent was set that it doesn't matter how popular a band is, you can't collab with them, because we're gonna engage in hypotheticals about which fandoms never want to overlap. The other big piece of BTS news from the past week, the Billboard magazine cover story. When the BTS ARMY started reading this cover story, they were very frustrated by what the article focused on. Because part of it was spent talking about, for like the 200,000th time, military enlistment. And when that's happening, how that will hurt the company's bottom line, really a lot of time once again spent discussing that. Fans were also upset by some of the interview questions like, making BTS respond to accusations that have long plagued them, without evidence, of chart manipulation. This constant accusation put forth, assuming there's no way they could be at the top of the charts, especially in the USA or other countries. RM, I think, summarized both the frustration with those accusations and the unfairness of them when he said, quote, It's a fair question. But if there's a conversation inside Billboard about what being number one should represent, then it's up to them to change the rules and make streaming way more on the ranking. Slamming us or our fans for getting to number one with physical sales and downloads, I don't know if that's right. It just feels like we're easy targets because we're a boy band, a K-pop act, and we have this high fan loyalty. Okay, let's step back here because I have a lot a lot of thoughts about this. 
First of all, I was very frankly just annoyed by reading about the military service question. Because whenever I read a profile on an artist I admire so much, I get frankly very upset when I see some of the questions they're asked because it just feels like a waste of time, frankly. Because, you know, as an aspiring K-pop reporter myself, sometimes I read artists' interviews and I'm just stuck thinking, if you have this very specific limited amount of time talking to someone as iconic as so-and-so, why are those the questions you worked into that short amount of time? That's what you wanted to ask them with your narrow time frame? That's the thing you thought fans would want an answer to? This is why I argue, actually, that some of the best K-pop coverage comes from true fans of K-pop. Because you may say, well, that's biased. But I would argue, actually, that it allows for more fair coverage of these artists because the questions asked to them are more interesting and full and nuanced and not focused on what might be seen as clickbaity or surface level or... It's just, it affects the quality of questions, I would argue. And I think if you are a real fan, when someone asks you, what do you want to ask BTS? Asking their thoughts about military enlistment, or even just taking up part of your word count on talking about enlistment, way at the bottom of the list. So much ground could have been covered, showcasing their achievements. I'm just frankly annoyed and tired of reading about their enlistment. Because we know what they're going to say. We know they're going to say, well, we're not going to opt out, duty calls, etc, etc, etc. We've heard them answer in that vague way time and time and time again. One thing I will say in the author's defense real quick, though, is just that I understand how it comes across as just callous and disrespectful that the focus was on Hybe's financial hit they could take when BTS enlists in the military. I get how that's upsetting to read, but honestly, I just think when you're a journalist profiling someone, part of that does involve taking into account and addressing an artist's impact at different levels and in different contexts. Looking at not just a social angle, but an economic angle of an artist's work is kind of part of the job in a way. I think the most frustrating thing about this is not even just it being discussed, in the context in which it was discussed, but the fact that it led the piece. Because here was the subheading of this piece. Quote, As it confronts military service and pressure from its country and agency, the band gets candid about burnout, its future, and the controversy behind its epic number one street. Unquote. That was all so negative to me. As they have to confront this pressure, burnout, and military service, The band opens up about its future and controversy. Just reads very clickbaity to me, and I just wish it was viewed as more attention-grabbing and clickbaity, I guess, to hear headlines like, the band opens up about their process, the band opens up about sources of inspiration, the deep meaning they find in their work, and their connection to the fans they adore. Something that was a bit more positive. I don't think that was too much to ask. Now let's move on to this chart manipulation accusation that seems to never die. I think there is still a lot of implicit bias people hold. I repeat, implicit, so you may not even realize it. But it mentally shuts off possibilities in people's minds 
that music that's not in English could top Western charts or even be a hit on Western radio. There are some people who view that as such a niche thing still that there's no way it could legitimately top the charts. And if you think about it, the accusations that some have used to claim BTS fans rigged the charts, what they're claiming is just that the fandom organized. It's not manipulation, it's organization. So let's say your team is in a relay race. Random analogy, but bear with me. And your team has a game plan early, stocks up early on the best water bottles with the best electrolytes or whatever, the best running shoes money can buy, trains like crazy, and wins number one in a competition. And then the other teams say, or even just fans of the other teams, say, hey, that's not fair. You gathered an unprecedented amount of support. You bought those running shoes in bulk for your team. You did an unprecedented amount of resource gathering and collective action to win a competition. That's not the accusation you think it is. It's not like a conspiracy to manually enter a computer and rig a chart ranking. It's organizing to do what you do when you want to win or show support for your fave. It's not as sketchy as people make it out to be. It's just, if you logically think through it, what they're saying is that's not fair because fans did this and this and that, and other fandoms didn't. Well, isn't that more of an indictment on other fandoms then? Step up your game. I don't know what to tell you. So if we look at what RM said bit by bit, I like how professional he stayed. It must have been incredibly frustrating to be asked about this, especially because, like I said before, that's not what we want to hear, and I don't think artists want those questions either. They want to be asked about their work in the deeper meaning of it. They don't want to be asked the clickbait questions either. So he said, if this is a conversation at Billboard about what being number one should represent, it's up to Billboard to change how the chart ranking works. That was a very polite way to say, hey, if you think it's cheating to have fans team up to issue group orders and buy a ton of album copies, then make streaming way more on the charts than album purchases or whatever. If you think the game is rigged, fix it. But he said, you know, slamming us or our fans and accusing us of the wrongdoing is not right. Why would the onus be on fans and artists to change a rigged game that's already frankly been against them for a very long time because of that implicit xenophobia and just this gut instinct people have to assume if it's an artist or a song in a different language they don't speak or that they've never heard before that tops the chart, it was just payola behind it. Obviously there's some truth to that sometimes. That's a conversation for another day. But this inability to see stars from other countries' success in America especially as just legitimately earned, I think there's just a lot of implicit bias there. And this close-mindedness to assume that, well, if you've never heard of the artist or if you've never heard that song, it can't possibly be on top of the charts, sounds especially out of touch and close-minded in the era of streaming and access to so much music from around the world. It's just natural that over time people would no longer have the same consensus about what the song of the summer is or what the most popular song in the country is that everyone has heard because everyone's hearing such a different mix of music now. With this new unprecedented access to music that you can really feel and love and be moved by. 
no matter what language you speak. Lastly, he points out, it feels like we're easy targets because we're a boy band, a K-pop act, and we have this high fan loyalty. You know, I talked about this with Maria Sherman, the author of Larger Than Life, so check out the How to Stay in Boy Bands episode if you want to hear our conversation. But anyway, we were talking about this, about how boy bands, it's a very weird thing because they're so popular, there's still a stigma, and that has to do with a lot of implicit biases against legitimizing the interests of young women, who are often viewed as the only fans. It's just a lot of stereotyping mixed with a close-mindedness. Just so many assumptions about what groups are real groups and which aren't. So many stereotypes about manufactured groups. And all of that, I think, has just been building in fans and building up our frustration for so long that to combine this incredulousness over how could you be so successful? Was this game rigged? Mixed with the military enlistment brought up for the millionth time? I think that combination just made for such an intense backlash, even more than usual for a piece that is viewed as extra derogatory. So yeah, not a fan, and I get why. And I just really wanted to spend a lot of time today covering this because this is so much more than this article. I think this story speaks to a lot of long-standing issues in Western media coverage of K-pop, of fandoms, as a belittling thing. I just think for way too long, legacy media has underestimated the absolute force fandom culture has become. Alright, let's move on to some lighter and quicker news. The K-Contact, aka Virtual K-Con, full lineup for September is out now. Remember, this starts Saturday, September 18th. This time, actually, it's Saturdays, Sundays, and Fridays, so nice for school-age people to still watch. So your full lineup. Day 1, Saturday the 18th, is AB6, Highlight, Wii, Weekly, and Park Jihoon. Sunday, September 19th, Dreamcatcher, Ghost9, and Stray Kids. Friday, September 24th, ET's Cypher, Mamamoo, and Woods. Saturday the 25th, B2B, JO1, Kim Jae-hwan, Purple Kiss, and TO1. And the final day, September 26th, Itzy, ONF, On and Off, Rain, and The Boys. Moving on to our last big story of the day, which is a bit more serious. Here is the latest in the legal case Samuel is in against Brave Entertainment. Quick recap, in 2019, Samuel said he would be promoting as this solo independent artist going forward. His company, Brave Entertainment, claimed that violated his contract, and they were blindsided by that announcement. They said, hey, what are you doing? That's illegal, and you didn't consult us first. What are you talking about? So, August 25th, at Seoul Central District Court this year, there was a hearing about this, where Samuel's lawyer argued that Brave Entertainment showed a deceptive pay statement to him and did other things that provided substantial grounds legally to terminate the contract. In other words, Brave Entertainment didn't play fair, so the rules of their game are null and void. Samuel is free to do what he wants. They also said he was forced to release music for this blockchain event, so there's a weird cryptocurrency scandal thrown in here too. And Brave Entertainment's lawyer argued both that that's not true, he wasn't forced to do anything, and that they were lying about the pay statement, lack of disclosure. 
in a very weird way, saying, quote, the difference with the number in the newly released payment statement is very minor, unquote. That was so weird to me, because doesn't that basically count as a confession? The difference with the number in the newly released statement is minor. So they're basically saying, yes, we gave him a pay statement that had a final number that was not accurate, but the difference was pretty small. So basically, we did it, but it's not a big deal, which is a weird way to defend yourself instead of denying it happened. I don't know of a time when ever a company argued in court that they did something, but it wasn't so bad, and then the judge was like, all right, you're off the hook. Not sure if they landed in hot water with that. We'll keep you posted. Let's move on to some miscellaneous rapid-fire headlines. There are lots of COVID updates. Son Gotin has tested positive and entered a quarantine facility. One former Eyes One member tested positive, Wan Yun. Five members of N-Hyphen tested positive. Three N-Flying members tested positive. And N-Hyphen's K-Contact performance, by the way, has been canceled as a result. In better news, Hannah from Goo Goo Dan is having an exciting fresh start, and from now on will promote as Sheen Bora. She plans to focus on acting now and just signed with FN Entertainment. Lots of other fresh starts lately. Sandra Park from 21 joined Abyss Company, home to Sunmi and Bam Bam. Yareen from GFriend is joining the Universe app as a soloist. Yuju from GFriend just joined Connect Entertainment, Kane Daniels Agency. Wee-In just joined The Live, a new agency Ravi founded. Joe Yuri from Eyes One started her own social media channel, so she's clearly ready to fully pursue a solo career. So now she's on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And lastly, CL signed with Satellite 414 for PR. She is still getting PR from other companies too, but this is just an additional one. This one is based in London. And fun fact, also represents Monster X. Speaking of, Monster X's I Am and Kihyun are the new hosts of Midnight Idol. This is a really fun format, I think, for in real life friends like them, because that show has a start time, but it never has an end time. So they could talk all into the night together if they want, which is super cute. There are a ton of online shows coming up. First of all, September 12th, 2 a.m. Eastern Time, which I believe is 1 a.m. Central Time. Studio PAV is having a K-Stage concert with some virtual VIP options. The MCs include Taehwan from Vanner and Arain from Pink Fantasy. In the night's performers include Mini Mani, Fistbump, must be Black Label, NCS, and Ocean. Nuvi has an online concert September 10th. ATs has a live premiere showcase for their upcoming album through the Universe app. September 13th, 8 p.m. Korean time, which is not too bad actually, 6 a.m. Central time. And this is huge. My Music Taste is hosting a concert with ATs and the boys in the same show. That one is. Oh my gosh, NCT 127 release day. That's an interesting choice. Anyway, this one is September 17th, 7.30 p.m. Korean time, 5.30 a.m. Central time. Lastly, Lisa from Blackpink 
Her solo is coming up super soon, and she will have a V-Live countdown right before it does. Will be Thursday, September 9th at 11 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 p.m. Central Time. Some 17 updates. June has finally joined Instagram. But speaking of June, him and the eight were just seen the other day officially getting on flights home to China. Their company issued a statement confirming that for the rest of the year, pretty much, they will stay in China because COVID protocols, things like that that make flying back and forth difficult. So it sounds like all of Seventeen's plans, like an October comeback, are still going forward as planned, but June in the Eight will not be attending any Korean promo events for the rest of the year. So Seventeen will promote as 11 members for the rest of the year's activities, on the bright side, first of all, June and the Eight then get time to focus on promotions in China as soloist. So we could get some exciting new music from them this year still. Second, because they're just leaving now, I assume they already contributed vocals to Seventeen's October album, so it will be like they're still present, at least somewhat, when they start promoting that album. Key from Shiny is having a solo concert through Beyond Live. His will be September 26th, 3 p.m. Korean time, which is 1 a.m. Central time. The KBS Awards are coming up September 10th, but some of the winners are already here. So congrats to many of them, including BTS, Brave Girls, Hwasa, and the K-drama River Where the Moon Rises. The newest DJs for EBS Radio are Sheen Wan from Pentagon and Kim Jae-hwan. Jun Ho from 80s is dealing with a knee injury, but he will still promote their September album. He'll just have modified choreography. Don Hun from Ace is enlisting in the military this month. AOA member Sohyun has started up a YouTube channel. Congrats to Alexa, who was a special ambassador and model at the 2021 Guangzhou Design Fest. Pre-orders of the flip phones for Samsung that BTS endorsed have already surpassed the total sales amount for all Samsung Galaxy devices this year so far. Speaking of BTS... Butter is now certified silver in the UK, and for the third year in a row, they were voted MTV UK's Hottest Summer Superstars. Reaching 50 million views, Jessie's What Type of X, 100 million on Everglow's Bonbon Chocola, 200 million views on Backdoor by Stray Kids, 300 million views on Dance the Night Away by Twice, and 500 million views Not Today by BTS. Stone Music Entertainment just surpassed 10 million YouTube subscribers. NCT 127's upcoming album has surpassed 200,000 pre-orders, and it actually surpassed that on K-Town For You site in less than four days. On day one, the album had over 1.3 million total stock pre-orders. I'm sure the 17 karat K-pop promo push is responsible, you're welcome. TXT joins Blackpink and BTS to be the only K-pop groups to ever spend multiple weeks in the Billboard 200 Top 10. Blackpink member Lisa's solo debut has already broken pre-order records. Reaching over 82,000 pre-orders and counting, it took just four days to surpass 700,000. Breaking a record for K-pop female soloist pre-orders. As for releases that are already here... 
Key and Taeyeon's collab Hate That topped iTunes in 10 international regions. Cravity's new album broke their own first week record from last time, selling over 100,000 copies. Six, aka CIX, nearly tripled their first week album sales from last time. Stray Kids' new album No Easy topped iTunes in 52 regions, and over 640,000 copies and counting have been sold. And last but not least, Very Very's new album surpassed their previous one week sales record in two days, selling over 24,800 copies. Okay, I know that was a lot of news to take in, so that's where I will leave you today. Stay tuned for lots more from me in the coming weeks, and while I still have your attention, this week's action item. Please consider donating to these funds to help victims of Hurricane Ida, and please avoid donating to the Red Cross instead, because these more localized, targeted organizations are how you can ensure your money is actually going towards who it needs to in a timely manner. You can donate to Another Gulf is Possible. They try to reach the most unlikely to receive mainstream organization help people. So the people who don't have online donation ability, GoFundMes, things like that. Imagine Waterworks is another one. They raise money through the Mutual Aid Response Network, and their focus is on climate and racial justice. So helping underserved communities become more resilient because they are disproportionately affected by these climate disasters. And the Workers' Justice Delivery Workers Fund. They're trying to pay for new bikes because, believe it or not, some DoorDash employees were still on the job during historic flooding in New York City. So their bikes that they need to go to work were reparably damaged in that water. So first of all, Please don't order DoorDash during flooding. Second of all, if you want to help them raise money to get new bikes, because theirs were damaged beyond repair, that's the Workers' Justice Delivery Workers' Fund. Thank you all for listening today. Look out for each other, and I'll talk to you all again very, very soon.